We are going to start today's session with a conversation with Sri Priya Mahesh, founding partner at Sparrow Ventures. Sri, welcome to the show. She's on mute. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, I can Thank hear you. Thank you so much, Shamla. I'm excited to be here. Great. Well, let's get, uh, get you acquainted with our audience. Tell us a little bit about your background and also about Sparrow Ventures. Um, you know, so I grew up in India and um, I came to the U.S. in 1995 and to Silicon Valley in early 99. And I've been in Silicon Valley since then, primarily in operating roles um, in product and product marketing. I ran um, global product for eBay for a number of years. And then before coming back to my next kind of stint with tech, I went to graduate film school at NYU, which was just an exciting and um, very um, intense period of my life. Um, it was great for a lot of hours. And then I came back um, to tech when I um, helped Pierre Midiar launch First Look Media. And I've been institutionally investing since 2015. I started at a Midiar network and in 2018, we spun out uh, Sparrow Ventures as a single LP, $100 million fund um, to invest in mission-driven entrepreneurs. Fantastic. So let's, uh, let's learn a little bit about what you identify as your investment thesis within the mission-driven entrepreneur space. Yeah, so the way we think about the world is that, you know, so what we say is we invest in the things that make life worth living. It covers well-being, work and purpose, and human connection. And the fundamental underlying thesis is that the greatest companies of our generation will both uh, return fantastic financial returns as well as have a very positive impact on the world. We do not think the two are separate. In fact, if you go back and look at companies like eBay or Tesla or even WhatsApp, it fundamentally democratized access um, and put agency in the hands of people. And so we think those are the kinds of companies that will have a massive impact on the world. Um, and we could have had any thesis, and we picked this because we think it's a really important one. And what, um, what stage do you invest in? Yeah, so we primarily invest in the earlier stages. You know, as you know, Shamana, over the past four years, what a Series A is has just changed dramatically, right? A Series A used to be four to five million. Now it's, I don't know, is it 10 million? Is it 15 million? We have no idea, right? Um, right. So what we say is we invest post-product market fit, and we invest two to three million dollars. Um, we lead. We price, we take board seats. Um, we have a very concentrated strategy. So we will invest in about 20 companies out of a $100 million fund. So we spend a lot of time with each of our companies um, and we put, we reserve a lot of dollars for each of our companies and we engage very deeply with them. Now, what does a company need to have? Um, product market fit, yes. Do they also need to already have revenue before you're willing to write that two to three million dollar check? 
So it depends if product market fit in that industry or for that company means revenue. Um, often it does, right? So if it does, yes, they, they should. Because, you know, revenue is a fantastic proxy for product market fit. Yeah. Um, in a business model that where they're not generating revenue, primarily in a very consumerish um, uh, scale-based business, then, you know, we will use other proxies. But yes, revenue is very important for product market fit. Now, um, what about geography? Where do you like to invest? So, you know, um, Omidia Network is global, but Sparrow Ventures, because we're a small team, we're very early, we focus on North America, partly because, you know, we spend a lot of time with our entrepreneurs and pre-COVID at least, we would be with them in person. Now, post-COVID, we're on the phone, so you could say, hey, could it be anywhere? But, you know, there's a benefit to knowing the market, to knowing, mm -hmm. to having connections to help the companies, to being able to help them to hire, and all of our networks are in the U.S. because it's where all of us have worked. So we mm -hmm. primarily focus on North America. Okay. Let's talk about some of the companies you've invested in, and um, in particular, as you described the stories, Talk about when they came to you or how did you find them and what is it about them that when you met them convinced you to write these checks? Yeah, so, you know, um, venture, as you know, is about exceptions. So I'm going to tell you about both Series A companies but also companies that have fallen outside of those bounds. Um, and so I'll start with Skillshare. Skillshare raised at the time when we invested four years ago what would now be a Series A. Back then it was called a Series B. Um, they did have product market fit. Skillshare is a learning platform that allows any creator to learn anything that will help them either with their career or in their lives. And it's a marketplace where anyone can teach and anyone can learn. And unlike many marketplaces, it's a subscription model. So you can subscribe either annually or monthly. And it's, you know, you can listen to and watch as many um, classes as you want. So, you know, I've taken classes in languages, I've taken classes in the arts, I've taken, you know, I've watched Matt Cooper, who's now the CEO of his class on accounting, because I wanted to watch Matt. So it's really anything to help a creator um, learn and expand their toolkit. When Skillshare came to us, they already had $5 million in revenue. Um, okay. And in a very c competitive market, they had raised less money than all of their peers in order to get to as much or more traction than any of them. And what okay. we really liked about Skillshare, so, you know, given my eBay background, I love the marketplace model. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think trying to predict what people want to learn about is a very hard business. But allowing people to determine, you know, like the millions of users and customers that they have, allowing those people to determine what they want to teach and what they want to learn, much better. We also loved the subscription model instead of a per-class per model because, you know, there are models where you pay hundreds of dollars for class. You may never finish it because, you know, two classes in, two videos in, you may realize, oh, it's actually not what I want to learn. I want to learn something else. And, you know, bringing that freedom and that joy and that lightness of experimentation to adults is what Skillshare did. So we loved the business model of how they were thinking about it. 
And we love the team. You know, when they raised Michael, uh, Karen, Jennifer Korn, who was the founder, was the CEO. Um, we really loved what Michael had built and their vision. And we thought there was great founder market fit. So, you know, those are some of the reasons that we invested in um, Skillshare. And, you know, Skillshare in the past four years since we invested has 10 x um, their revenue, they have 10 x their um, users, they've just grown amazingly fast. And Matt Cooper, who joined as COO, and then became CEO when Michael decided to start another company, he started a company called Otis. Um, mm-hmm. just, Matt has done a fantastic job. So, you know, it's been, and it's not like, you know, when you look back four years in, it seems like everything is up and to the right. It actually wasn't, right? Because no company is really up and to the right. In the day-to-day, it's always a roller coaster. Um, and so I had its roller coaster moments, but it's all about how the team deals with those roller coaster moments. Um, yeah. And yeah. the team dealt with it really well. So that's one example. Shri, before you go on to the next one, I have one question. And this mm-hmm. is uh, trying to draw some lessons from the marketplace models, the modern marketplace model. Um, we are seeing a lot of subscription marketplaces. So uh, could you elaborate a little bit on the business model? Is it subscription on both sides, subscription on one side? What are you seeing and what, what, is, what is your analysis of the evolution of the marketplace model? Yeah, thanks, Shamana. Um, yeah, Skillshare happens to be a marketplace on one side, which is on the viewer or the learner or the you know, creator learner side. The teachers you know, come in and can create as many or as few classes as they want, very flexible around that. I think marketplaces are, you know, they hold a special place in my heart because I just think they're such an efficient marketeering mechanism, right? Like it just sets the market price, like what are you willing to pay? Um, and I think we are seeing it in more and more spaces. It's a very hard model to get off the ground because getting started is, is the hardest part in a marketplace. But once you get to a certain amount of scale, there's network effects that go with it, right? Because if, I mean, every new viewer makes the marketplace more valuable to a teacher, and every new teacher makes the marketplace more valuable to the viewer. And when they, when each new class makes it more valuable for the viewer, it then makes it valuable for all the other teachers. So the, the network effects uh, model is just, it's a fantastic upward trajectory, right? It keeps reinforcing itself. Um, I've seen many, many takes on it, but not that many have been successful, right? Um, in crowded markets, I have seen models where they plateau. Um, because one of the things with marketplaces is your, um, your conversion still has to be high. That's truly when you can get to network effects. Like if you put new inventory on, does the conversion keep up or does it stay does the conversion drop dramatically, which means then your demand side isn't actually scaling with your supply side. So I think it's just there's so many nuances to marketplaces. There's so much uh, innovation that I hope to see entrepreneurs make. Uh, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a tough model to start with. But if you're able to you know, step scale both sides, so one increases and the next one catches up, and it increases and catches up, it's a great model to use as a business model. Absolutely. All right, do you want to do another one? Sure, another one that I'll talk about is a company called Core. Um, Core is a meditation company. And we invested in Core 
um, at their seed, which was, of course, um, you know, not their A, and they hadn't launched, so it was pre-product market fit. Um, you know, we'd looked at the meditation space for a while, and it's a space we cared about deeply. Um, I had dealt with an illness uh, in 2017, 2018, and my doctors had recommended meditation. So I had tried literally every um, app in available. And what I found was, you know, they were good, um, but they were very fungible in the sense that, you know, moving from one app to the other, what you got was, you know, different sets of accents, different sets of teachers, but the experience was fundamentally the same, right? Mm-hmm. And despite their being them being very successful, and I hope they continue to be very successful, you know, a, a question, our question as investors was, what does that mean for us from a moat? Like, can someone pull away? Can That's someone? Yeah, yeah. What's the barrier to leave? Right from, right. as we know now, switching apps is 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 easy. And That's interestingly, easy. Core actually had um, a, a hardware device, and I'm actually going to bring it to you just to, so that you guys can see it. Um, it was beautifully designed, even when we met them, and this is the device. And it has, um, so, you know, most people, most investors, us included, think hardware is really hard. And it is. It's harder than software alone, right? But when we looked at this device, it does two things. One, you hold it in your hands, just like this, and it tracks your heart rate and your HRV while you meditate, which is great data. It also tracks your minutes of calm and your minutes of focus, and it's blindingly accurate. Um, and finally, it vibrates, right? So it, when you're doing breath training, it vibrates to, like if you're doing a box breath training, four in, hold for four, breathe out for four, hold for four. It vibrates with that so that you don't even have to think about it. It does your counting, it does your vibration, and it guides you. And for a lot of people, the hardest part is a point of focus, right? Because meditation yeah. has become very hot, but most people will feel, oh, my God, I'm really bad at it. And there's we know that there's no such thing as being bad at meditation, but the reason people think they're bad is it's hard to focus your mind, right? And so core yep. provides a point of focus with a vibration, and it also gives you data on how you're improving. So I felt they were finally here with something that was using technology to bring meditation into you know, the modern age. Um, and we thought the hardware could be a moat. And so they've since launched their average meditations per week and per month are 5x their competitors. So, you know, it's, um, it was also a fantastic team, loved the CEO, Sarah McDevitt, who started the company because uh, she had anxiety as a massive anxiety attack as she was leaving Microsoft to move to come to Stanford's uh, graduate program in both design and education. And, um, you know, so we invested before they'd launched, and they've just had a phenomenal launch, but have a lot, long way to go, right? They're a startup. And so that's an example where we said very much in our thesis, you know, has the ability to break the mold, and, you know, we believe that this team can kind of weather the roller coaster. So what is the price point of this one? So Core has tried multiple price points since they launched earlier this year. But right now, you can get the device and the subscription 
um, for $15 a month. I see. Okay. Very good. Do you want to do another one? Sure. And then the final one that I'll do is a company called Mati, uh, M-A-T-I, and we invested in them. It's one of our more recent ones um, earlier this year. And what they do is they allow um, identity verification and all that comes with it, um, both in the U.S. and outside. And what we saw there, Philippe is the founder, and Philippe uh, has been an immigrant for a long part of his life. So he grew up in Europe but became an immigrant to go learn in, um, in the U.K. when he was a child. He just wandered off to the U.K. and told his parents he's not coming back because he wanted to study. And then he moved to the U.S. and came to college here in the U.S., and, you know, he's dealt with being an immigrant. And as some of us who've, who've, who've come here as immigrants know, we, you know, you have to establish a credit record. You have to establish, you know, your identity. There's a lot you have to do before you can be a fully functioning human being in society. And um, Philippe is now enabling identity verification in the developing world, right, or in the rest of the world. So they started in um, LATAM, in Mexico and LATAM. And, you know, there are lots of countries where data is buried in inaccessible databases or in paper records, and they are both digitizing that and enabling both verification and transactions based on that verification to give people agency. So um, we invested in, this was, a, this was a bet that identity verification was going to be hugely important in the years to come, as well as in the founder who was an incredibly impressive founder. And this is a company that has just grown like a weed since we met him. You know, we encouraged Philippe to move to a ARR model versus just a single time revenue model. You know, think mm -hmm. through how do you charge people? How do you encourage the people who want to grow with you to come back? Finding real product market fit with, you already had uh, signs of product market fit, but really making that concrete. Um, so that's another one that fits into our thesis that we recently invested in. Okay, great. So um, my next question is a trend question. Um, you know, each investor looks at the world with a certain lens, um, a certain investment thesis, and you have your own, and you have projected to the world that this is your investment thesis and this is the kind of deals that you want to see. So within your deal flow, what trends are you seeing? What trends were you seeing before COVID and what, what, how has that shifted or morphed, evolved in the COVID yeah. era? So, you know, the, the, we, we believe deeply in community. Um, mm -hmm. We think that um, building community authentically and we developed a thesis called product-led communities, where communities form around solving hard problems, whether it's meditation or learning. If you have a community with you, it really helps you build a moat, and it really helps your customers um, achieve their goals. So we're seeing a lot more companies emerge in the community space, um, and we think that's super interesting. We saw it before COVID. We've seen them accelerate since COVID, right, because that's something when you're especially doing that offline that you can do regardless of, of where you are. The other trend that we've seen um, 
in um, even before COVID was, you know, it was pretty heated. Like the valuation markets were very, pretty heated. And, you know, we really thought about what would happen when COVID hit. We wrote a thoughtful, you know, letter to our LPs and we were completely wrong. We thought prices would come down. People would like, you know, batten down the hatches and, you know, plan for the long term. For certain markets, the prices have gone crazy. The multiples are literally like 50, 100x, 200x um, in certain places. And, you know, that's, I think that's hard for investors, sure, but it's much harder for entrepreneurs. Because if you raise at that valuation, what's really going to happen at the next round? There's going to be a reckoning either in the next round or the round after. And now I hear some entrepreneurs say, we're not going to have to raise again. Is that really true, right? If you pull in your plans from 24 months to 12 months, is that really true that you don't have to raise again? You know, and I feel I I worry for first-time entrepreneurs who haven't seen the cycle, who will get burned by this, you know? Our our philosophy is just bite-sized chunks, take as much capital as you need for the next 24 months, hit all your metrics, take another bite, 24 months, slow and steady, you know? And um, I, I really have a lot of worries for, you know, multi-million dollar rounds when a company has no revenue and maybe hasn't yeah. even found product market fit, but it's hot. I don't blame the entrepreneurs at all, right? Like, hey, if money is being thrown at you, it's very hard to resist. Um, but I think it's a DC's job to be responsible. And I don't necessarily think we're doing the right thing by many of these entrepreneurs. Of course, we should give them money course we should support them but this momentum investing has gone to a fever pitch and you know it, it's a really hard it, it's an amazing and difficult uh world to to navigate right now yeah you know we have a series that we do on our blog called debt by overfunding and we have case study after case study of companies that had no business going out of business but went out of business for absolutely the wrong reasons. I mean, one of my, I wouldn't say favorite case studies, one of the saddest case studies is this uh, story of Nasty Gal, this eBay seller who did phenomenally well, Sofia Amoroso, and then raised a lot of money and then started just doing stuff that did not scale, did not stick, and, and went out of business. And that company was so well put together to begin with it hardly needed any money. It was actually doing fine as a bootstrap company. Yeah, I saw that she recently left the organization as well. It's really sad when that happened. So yeah, yeah. Now, um, any predictions or any um, you know notes from the COVID times that you want to convey to entrepreneurs? Yeah, I you know uh, I'm out of the prediction market after my prediction on prices was just so spectacularly wrong. But what I'd say is, um, you know, what I've seen from entrepreneurs who have navigated this time well is that they're just super realistic. So I have seen entrepreneur, I've seen, I've seen the spectrum of reactions to COVID. And I think the entrepreneurs who just said, okay, this is, this is what's happening. What do we have to do to get to the other side? Just be really realistic. Make cuts, make them once, make them deep. Very hard to do, right? Because your team is really has been with you through 
through the roller coaster, but you know, the entity yeah. that's often represented is the company. And you have to put the entity, um, that has to be the primary concern, right? How does this yeah. entity get to the other side? And, and really have adapted their models for uh, an online long distance world. Um, I do think we're in this world, at least till the same, the same time next year, right? Um, hopefully we'll have a vaccine, but you know, with, with very poor federal level management or guidance, I don't see how the U.S. Um, snaps out of this and returns to normalcy anytime soon. And so we are certainly telling our entrepreneurs to prepare for the long term. Um, and though, I mean, you know, it's very hard shutting down a business line or refocusing when you spend five years every single day focused on it. It's much easier for us, okay, we have a portfolio. Our entrepreneurs have it way harder, and I, and I recognize that. But, you know, putting those feelings aside for a moment and just thinking very rationally on what do I need to do to get to a year from now, um, those entrepreneurs have been much more successful at making the hard decisions and kind of embracing this is where we are. Let's look for the opportunities in this world, right? And some yeah. of them have created new lines of business. So I, I really encourage you to, um, you know, encourage all the entrepreneurs who may be listening to really embrace the reality and move forward with this is what we have to deal with, right? That entrepreneurs have overcome so much. And it's hard to be an entrepreneur at any time, but COVID is just a tremendous challenge. And, but if anyone can do it, you know, people who started companies can. And so um, I'd encourage them to really like look at it very clear eyed and make the decisions they have to make. Yeah. I think there's still another 18 months of uh, really difficult times ahead, at least. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Absolutely. We have to be realistic. We have to survive before we can get to the next level. Yeah. Very good, Sri. Uh, wonderful chatting with you on, on what you're up to, what Spiro Ventures is 